Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. <sighs> and once again, we uh, we are not looking at each other, and I'm yeah. saying... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same space we were in, but... I mean, it's... How many... I know for all of y'all, it's been a couple of weeks, but... Andy, how long has it been since we've recorded one of these? Um, I don't remember when you visited. Was that like three or four weeks ago? <laughs> I was about to say. It wasn't terribly long, but about a month sounds right, yeah. Yeah, no. It, it's it's interesting. I was talking to my sister earlier today, and I mentioned that I was recording with you this afternoon. And she, she listens. Hey, Steph, how's it going? She listens because um, she's supportive and nice and... and you know, it's a pain-free way to help out. And I was sitting here going, like, I told her about what the topics are because she's also a fan of what the what our love is. And she, and I'm sitting here going, like, I don't know how long it'll be till this episode comes out. I'm pretty sure I'm telling you this. And you're probably thinking, oh, the next episode's going to have John Mulaney. And no, that, that comes out, like, two and a half months later, so... <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that's maybe not two and a half months, but like we record these far enough in advance that yeah. I, I don't know. I hope I hope her hopes aren't up, Steph. I hope your hopes haven't been up. I also <laughs> know you don't really listen to these when they come out, so you come you, you listen to them usually when you get to them, which is valid. You're an adult with a child and responsibilities, and I'm your shitty little brother who um, is just kind of doing this stuff for the piss of it. So hey there. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it's not that kind of show where you necessarily have to keep up to date with what we're doing, but okay, let's go your route. No, yeah, I tell people, skip around. If, you, if you, There's no topic. If you don't care about Mark Wade's Daredevil, for God's sake, don't listen to the Mark Wade's Daredevil episode. Who cares? Listen to other stuff. Like, <laughs> the goal, I think, is, you know, we're coming up on, you know, 20 this is our 21st episode that's right i hope that after a certain number you know we have enough topics that people will just be like oh okay let me let me listen to like people will come to it and go all right here are like five or ten that i'm really into and here's others that i don't care about and honestly we're good with that don't stress it yeah i mean you know obviously if you're uh if you're calling in for relationship advice um we keep you on your on your toes figuring out when we're actually going to get to you if especially if you don't give us a code name um but yeah i i think we've got about two in the can and that's we we've been pretty good about keeping that the way it is at any given time we record there are there are two episodes that are going to be coming out before this one yeah so once again, we're talking about how we make the podcast on the podcast, which because... I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun for us, and and uh, I, I think I've talked about this or touched on this in some ways. But there's a couple there, there's a couple of podcasts I've listened to that have versions of um, what's called just like a douchebag buffer, which is just a let's talk about you know inane BS that no one actually cares about for a certain amount of time. So that people we don't like and don't want to listen to this, people who would just be awful, will just switch it off and they <laughs> won't listen anymore. And we haven't gotten any reviews or anything that have suggested that, you know, anyone is doing that. But 
Uh, I don't know. I'm happy with it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I feel like it helps everyone, you, me, and and you, dear listener, uh, kind of chill out and, and get ready to get into our wildly all-over-the-place manner of speaking to each other. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And also, you know, if, if there, you know what, if there are any of you out there who don't like our little buffer talk at the top, like, who, who actively dislike it, think it would be better if we just jumped straight into our topics, please, engage with us. Tweet us, at LHRPod, put it in a review, whatever you're, whatever you're listening to this on, let us know. We're interested to hear this, because until we get significant feedback that says otherwise, until we get enough feedback that it would legitimately be irresponsible for us to continue to ignore you, we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> and even probably for a little while after that, because, eh? Well, yeah, for about two episodes after that, we're going to keep doing whatever the problematic thing is. <laughs> Again, 21 episodes. At this point, like, they've had, they've had enough time to let us know. That's true. Uh-huh. You ready to get started? Yeah, so so speaking right. of our, our 21st episode, our, our show is old enough to drink and... and Isn't that the only one at 21? All the other cool stuff you get at 18? Uh, so you can... Yeah, you can smoke. You can uh, buy porn. You can vote. Uh, you can be tried as an adult if you're white. Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, they they let us do that early. Um, right. Yeah, no, 21, you can drink. 25, you can rent a car. At 35, you can run for president. That's about it. There you go. Yeah. So, so, so um, quick, quick note on how our show is structured, um, because I'm trying to be better about doing this. Uh, this is Love-Hate Relationship. We're three segments. Uh, Andy and I trade off our loves and our hates. The first section, we do a discussion on a topic that one of us or both of us, as uh, is kind of the case here, deeply loves something we want to highlight and give some attention to and discuss deeply as something that we love. Then we go into a topic of something we hate. Andy, you're bringing that this time. And then uh, after that, we take a question from you, our beautiful, brilliant, uh, well-coiffed, uh, give me another complimentary adjective, Andy. Uh... uh... Calipigian. Okay, I have two degrees in the English language, and I don't know what the fuck that means, but okay. <laughs> Calipigian uh, listeners, and we try and help you with your lives. So I'm going to be looking that up later. It is my turn to bring the love on this particular episode. So you've read the title card. You know at least the name, and if you're not familiar with the name, uh, we will get into it. Andy, I'm going to start, as I always enjoy doing so, by asking you to relate to me in as brief a manner as reasonably possible what you think of when you think about the name John Mulaney. So we started the show talking about one of my all-time favorite comics and it's a comic of yesteryear it's it's somebody sam kennison very grounded in his era and not the present and i think about john mulaney and i think about how he is not only one of mine and your favorite comics working today he is he is one of my favorite modern comics i also think about how he's kind of 
done something to bring stand-up comedy, at least in a couple different ways, back from how it used to be in, like, the, the late 50s and 60s. Specifically, like, wearing a suit on stage, which has been sort of his trademark style and something that was really gone from the comic landscape, at least since uh, Seinfeld was doing it. So I think about just this amazing comic who has both raised the bar in the modern era and also in, in a couple different ways brought comedy back to what it was decades ago. Interesting. Okay, cool. So uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, and, and you're and you're a Mulaney fan, obviously. So I was really interested. I, I recently went and re-listened to a lot of our back catalog just to kind of review and mine for some of the things that we've... Because we'll talk on, in, our, in the process of talking about doing the podcast on the podcast. We'll regularly be like, oh, that should be a future love. That should be a future hate. That should be a future love. 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 You can see that it's easier to do one third of this podcast than the other two thirds. Um, but we mentioned Mulaney in that first episode where we talked about Sam Kinison. You know, Mulaney gets, and Mulaney got brought up a couple more times in some other episodes, and I think that, you know, Kinison is the only comic that we've really talked about in depth, and I thought that it would be a good idea to bring in another comic, you know, talk about another stand-up comedian, and when, when trying to figure out who I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about someone a little newer. I wanted to talk about someone I feel is markedly different from Kinnison. And I wanted to talk about someone that I knew we were both familiar with. So John Edmund Mullaney, known colloquially as just John Mullaney, uh, is our love topic for today. So thank you for that little intro bit. Uh, I'm going to get into some little bio portions. I actually have very sparse notes for this section, um, because I knew that both Andy and I were very familiar with Mulaney, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna basically run down it and then open this up to just discussion between the two of us. You cool with that? Absolutely. All right. So John Edmund Mulaney is a comic writer, actor, producer uh, who was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, 1982. So he is. Seven years older than me, I think nine years older than you. Uh, ten, yeah. Okay, yeah. So uh, he is the third son of Ellen and Charles Chip Mullaney, a law school professor and attorney, respectively, which he'll talk about that in his act, and, and we can probably get into that, but I feel like that informs a lot about him. Yeah. Uh, at age five, he knew that he was interested in becoming a performer after watching I Love Lucy and becoming enamored with Desi Arnaz's Ricky Ricardo. He and his best friend, John O'Brien, yes, that John from the Salt and Pepper Diner sketch, Watch you, pussycat! Uh, would regularly try and convince their teachers in school to let them perform skits in class in lieu of writing reports, based on the stuff that they'd learned. He attended Georgetown University, same as his parents, uh, where he became active in improv and met both Nick Kroll and Mike Birbiglia. In 2008, he auditioned for SNL and became a writer for the next six seasons, which is really where he cut his teeth in his writing chops, and I do want to talk about his writing. 
He also pursued stand-up around this time, releasing the top part in 2009, which I think is the only one of his specials where he doesn't wear a suit, it's, interestingly Yeah, enough. it's jarring to look at the CD cover. <laughs> yeah, he's in like a hoodie and like a t-shirt. Then it was New in Town, 2012, The Comeback Kid in 2015, and Kid Gorgeous in 2017, all released to incredible critical acclaim. Uh, he also co-wrote Oh Hello on Broadway with Nick Kroll, is a consulting producer on Big Mouth, uh, on which he is also a co-star, uh, wrote, produced, and starred in the terrible Mulaney show, which I think is his only really big miss, at least as far as I've seen. And uh, he, this past year, uh, made his feature film debut as Peter Porker's Spider-Ham in uh, Into the Spider-Verse. So that's my basic rundown on Mulaney. And you mentioned his stand-up up front, so I think that's a good place to get started. Uh, now, prior to this episode, Andy, I re-watched all, or I listened to uh, the top part, re-listened to that, and then watched the specials for New in Town, Comeback Kid, and Kid Gorgeous leading up to this. And, dude, they hold up like hell. I would imagine so, yeah. That's some epic preparation right there. <laughs> I mean, I try my best. For me, it, it's interesting that you talk about Mulaney bringing back kind of an old, an older style to stand-up. Because the first thing that I always think of when I think of Mulaney's stand-up is Mulaney is clearly, clearly a writer. Everything that he puts through on his stand-up. And I learned about this a number of years ago, and I think that it says a lot about how he works. Mulaney writes his bits. He, he does the thing where he carries around a notebook to jot his ideas. But when he's actually hammering out the stuff that he writes, John Mulaney lives in New York City. He literally rents out an office space. Like a... a, a room in an office building somewhere in New York where it's literally just like there's a desk and a computer and he walks into this office space by himself and just writes. <laughs> and that's how he crafts this material. And the thing that I'm fascinated with with his stand-up is it is always so meticulous in its diction, in its delivery, in the way that he he does, like, I got to see Kid Gorgeous. I got to see it live. Uh, he came to Asheville, and Stephanie and I went out to go see him, and then we watched the Netflix special a little while later. Every minute aspect of his performance is identical to the way it was when he performed it live, with so little change. Because he's honed exactly how this entire thing is going to be performed. His facial expressions, his gestures, his delivery. Everything is meticulously crafted. Like an actor, like a serious writer, like a serious performer. Mulaney takes the... Like, yes, he tells ridiculous stories about putting his bulldog in a stroller and, like carting his little French bulldog Petunia around New York City so that people look in thinking they're going to see a baby. Like, he can <laughs> tell that story, but he delivers it in this perfect way with these perfect turns of phrase 
that are so exquisitely done. That's what I always think of with Mulaney's stand-up. It's perfectly written, perfectly rehearsed. He knows not just what he's saying, but also how he's delivering it in a way that I haven't seen since Carlin. Sure, and it's it, it all ties into the same thing. The man is a professional. I didn't know about the office space, but you know, basically what you're describing is he he goes and he gets out of his home, he gets out of the the comfort zone and he puts himself in a work environment to like polish these bits and these stories and these jokes his his presentation is he is in a very nice suit he he looks absolutely professional and and hearing you talk about the the caliber of preparation and consistency in his act yeah i totally see that it is it is a performance meticulously rehearsed and meticulously like he figures out what the perfect comic timing is and then knows he has to hit that and i i think that's amazing and i think that's part of why he has such appeal you know i think about um dane cook and interesting and Go dane on. cook was a a very 2004 era comic why do people insist on yelling at the drive-thru you know, it's modern technology. I'd be there with my little headset. Hi, welcome to Burger King. May I take your order? And you, you want, you, you, you remember, you think back to Dane Cook, you remember his bits and it, it, it's very, he's up there in like a wife beater. I think, in, yeah, in his, in his first ever Comedy Central special, he's up there in a black yeah. wife beater or he, he's looking very casual and it's very frantic and kinetic and just looking at other stuff. I mean, comedians walked away from wearing suits and, and walked away from this, the, at least walked away from making it obvious how hard they work on their craft. And Mm -hmm. Mulaney really has been like bringing all that back in and, and putting, several different layers of polish on his end product. And and I think that's admirable. I think that's great. You know, everyone, every, anyone can become the best at something. And sometimes it's because of raw talent. And sometimes it's because you put in the hard work and, and John Mulaney puts in the work. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you bring up Dane Cook here. And I wouldn't have made that connection, but now that I'm thinking about it, so Dane Cook was, you know, all all jokes about him aside, Dane Cook had a really amazing talent that I think he shares with Mulaney. Yeah. Which is, Dane Cook could come up with a turn of phrase that you would never expect, and it works so well. Like, I, when I think of Dane, especially those early Dane Cook bits, he has the whole bit about... Someone being at, uh, I think, like a monster truck or demolition derby, and they get hit in the face with a tire. And he's like, Mary got hit in the face with a tire. <laughs> and, and and I can't even do... Yeah, no. It's like, how does a human being think of a phrase like that? How does a person think of a turn like that? How do you come up with a story like that? Or him ranting about like the frustration of people giving you the finger. 
Like, these are things that I could totally see Mulaney twisting in his own way. And it's, and it's in the same way that John Mulaney could talk about getting a, getting in getting his prostate examined right. and afterwards going, and I shuffled away feeling different. <laughs> right. Like the, the, the content isn't necessarily all that different. You know, John Mulaney has the story of getting the prostate exam, which is full of very graphic and very blue humor elements. He, he has a joke when I saw him live, he's got a joke about his mom dragging him to see Bill Clinton because <laughs> they, uh, his, his mom they went to school together. Yeah, his mom went to school together and, and it ends with, like they he he gets dragged through i think it's like the the democratic convention or something and he gets dragged through he gets dragged into a um a fundraiser a chicago right, fundraiser for is. bill clinton yeah right and his mom's dragging him through and talking about it the whole time and and he thinks his mom's full of crap but as soon as they see bill clinton you know, he, he sees her and he goes oh ellen right because bill clinton does not forget a bitch <laughs> That's at the end of the comeback kid, yeah. Right, 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 right. And, but that's the thing, like, di- here, here's the trick. I could see that line in Dane Cook's mouth, because he never forgets a bitch. But Dane Cook would deliver, the way Dane Cook would deliver that would play really, really well to a Dane Cook type of audience. Right. Which is kind of bridged over from that Sam Kinison era 90s, like... Dane Cook hit, I think he hit his career peak in like 05 or so, 05, 06, like around there. And it was very much, you know, there's a way that Dane Cook would say the word taint that would just, just hit you in the gut. But when Mulaney says, because Bill Clinton never forgets a bitch, you can tell that he, he, you can tell the joke isn't that his mom is a bitch. The joke is that Bill Clinton, problematic as hell Bill Clinton, which he refers to several times. He's like, this man is incredibly charismatic and incredibly horrible. <laughs> and 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 he can play this nuance just in his language in a way that's so perfect. Because So even though both he and Cook have this talent for phrasing, that that's the thing. Mulaney takes this talent for phrasing and then turns it into something with far wider appeal than Dane Cook. Dane Cook stopped being popular because his audience grew up, basically. Yeah. Mulaney's stuff, you could tell the salt and pepper diner story to an 11-year-old or to a 70-year-old, and I honestly think it could probably hit either way as long as they know who Tom Jones is. Yeah, I mean, he he took this... He, he correctly diagnosed his image, which is milk-toast white dude, and, you know, kind of just took that to its, its, its best polished look with the suit and tie i mean he's he's got the joke about talking about his alcoholism as a teenager and being like i know you're looking at me and thinking i don't look like an alcoholic i look like someone who sat in a room and ate saltines for my entire life until i came out here yes yes exactly like 
And no, and, and I think in that same special, he has a thing where he's, he's talking about how people are always asking him and his wife if they are ever going to have kids, which I can relate to. I think you can relate to that, too. Because, um, you know, when you're when you're a married, childless couple in your first, I don't know, five years of being married, everyone asks you that. All the people over the age of 40 you meet ask you that fucking question. And, and Mulaney literally goes like, we're not, we're not planning on having kids. And people go, never? And they say, I don't know about never. The day before my college graduation, I smoked crack cocaine. <laughs> now I'm afraid to get a flu shot. People change. <laughs> Why does a human being come up with that? Apparently by locking themselves in an office building and, and working that on that idea for hours and hours and hours. I mean, you know, I, I did, I didn't do stand up in college. I've never done stand up. Um, but I have done improv comedy and I have done uh, sketch humor. You know, I, I was a part of a group that, that put on a couple of sketch shows. I have written sketches and writing's writing. It doesn't matter if you are, you know, coming up with a epic series of fantasy novels or a stand-up act or, you know, just a, a, a two-minute uh, sketch piece about boot camp. Like... Writing is writing. Writing is a craft. Writing is something you can you need to work on and practice at and get better with. I'm I'm talking to somebody who knows much more about this than myself. <laughs> hmm? And that's the man you 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 clarified him as a writer, and I think that's really fitting. He is a writer who has found great success as a stand-up comedian and as a entertainment personality. But he's a writer, and that influences everything. Yeah. And I mean, like, you can't really appropriately talk about Mulaney, and this is a lovely segue I'm doing now, um, without discussing his time at SNL. You know, that... That first special, the top part, came out when he was like a year or two into his time at SNL. And he's on record. He has been on record as saying, like, a lot of people would ask him, you know, don't you want to be in the main cast? Don't you? Didn't you ever want to, you know, be a main performer at SNL? Um, because that happens for a lot of people. A lot of people will start off like Tina Fey. Tina Fey started off as a writer on SNL. Until she was eventually heading the writer's room and then became a performer on screen. Like, that was Tina Fey's way of doing it. But Mulaney would say, like, honestly, no, because I was writing for Fred Armisen. And I was writing for... Um, who else Who else did he reference there? Um, Daryl Horatio Hannah. Sands. Daryl Hannah. Um, not Hannah. Daryl Hammond! Kate McKinnon, all of these incredible talents, Leslie Jones, and he said, I, I, I don't need to be, I don't need to be doing it. They're, they're the real talent in that regard. I'm good at just sitting and coming up with the stuff. So he came up with Stefan, with Bill Hader, and let Bill Hader do all of the performing for it. And I like that he has that humility about it, 
but also just the sharpness of like look up any Stefan sketch on YouTube. Mulaney co-wrote it with Bill Hader, and it's incredible every single time. And you can kind of hear that Mulaney meticulousness in every Stefan line. Oh, absolutely. And and just the the insane references and the the A to E level comedic thinking. Yeah, it's it's totally in there. Yeah. And I mean that and that continues. Have you seen Oh Hello on Broadway? I loved Oh Hello on Broadway. I I yes. I want to talk about it in its own time, but like I thought it was a comedic <laughs> masterpiece. Yeah, no, and that's and that's the fact that Melania and Nick Kroll are so tight together and do such a good job together and and you know, they they obviously work together a whole lot. But it, even there like for anyone who doesn't know, Oh Hello on Broadway is um, the Nick Kroll show had a recurring segment where John Mulaney and Nick Kroll would perform as these two old, like, New York City dudes. Yeah, like Long Island, just old, eccentric curmudgeons. Who would interview a celebrity guest on a show called Too Much Tuna. The joke of which would be they would serve him a sandwich at the end with entire with a comical amount of tuna on it at the end of the sketch at the end of like a 5 minute interview where they would either depending on the age of the person they were interviewing either know everything about their career or know absolutely nothing about their career and need to be like oh so this is what the children are listening to these days like the it, it's and the Nick Kroll sketches can be hit or miss, but OLO on Broadway was they turned Too Much Tuna into a full-length stage show with a segment of Too Much Tuna in the middle um, where they interview Steve Martin on the Netflix version. Uh, and it is superbly done, these characters that they have fleshed out into these wonderful, really amazing just people. And it's it's... You would think you'd get bored watching two dudes talk for, you know, an hour and a half, but it does not get old. Right. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take myself out of myself and listen to what you just pitched as somebody who's never heard of John Mulaney to, to help empathize with anyone in our audience who is completely foreign to these guys and that show. And that sounds dumb and boring but it's not it's it's the the thing about oh hello especially the broadway show it is a it is a comedy tour de force it is jokes within jokes within references and that like like flashbacks within a flash forward of jokes and and meta humor and like it it, it it's it's something that douchebag is the wrong word but it is a it is a barometer i feel like to have somebody watch that and see if they find it funny or not to kind of gauge the the kind of comedy that they like and i'm not even talking about like stuff that is vulgar or offensive because for the most part i don't think oh hello really is at all um but it's like how how deep do you want your comedy to go how how deep do you want a mind to get your laughs because it is a truly inexplicably funny like it's it's funny on like a bo burnham level 
But even Bo Burnham yeah. is like it, it. It's funny on a Bo Burnham level, minus Bo Burnham songs. <laughs> I feel like well, Bo Burnham, Bo Burnham gets smarter with every special he does. Yes, that's right. Like that's like that's that's legitimate. Mulaney, like oh hello, is really smart. It is a really really smartly written show. Um, I wouldn't call it highbrow, but it's you know that might be that might be a real good way to sum up John Mulaney's just writing and oeuvre in general. John Mulaney's work is sm- is for smart people who like to say the f word. Yeah, because I I can't call it highbrow because I know highbrow. Like I went to college around highbrow, and highbrow is like. Highbrow would find a lot of problematic aspects with the way that a lot of Mulaney's writing comes off and a lot of what it discusses. Again, you're not going to talk about smoking crack cocaine the day before your college graduation in, like, highbrow, quote-unquote, comedy. And it's not, like, it's not clean across the board. Like, it's not Gaffigan. Who I think is a fine comic, he really is, and I I think Jim Gaffigan is does a lot of good work, and but he's and and he, and he is you know plants his plant his flag in the sand and says, okay, I'm a clean comic, I'm going to do clean work, I don't disparage unclean non clean comics, but this is what I do. Mulaney's not doesn't work clean, but he doesn't work blue. He's not a Jezelnik. He's got this mainstream appeal, but. To really appreciate Mulaney, you need to get cultural references. You need to you need to know you need to be able to understand what he's talking about when he says, "In college, I lived like a goddamn ninja turtle. I didn't drink water the entire time, and I lived on cigarettes and coffee and Adderall." <laughs> right. I mean, you need to. But you also need to be able to understand. Him, his, his, just the sheer goddamn wit of everything he's coming up with. Right. You have to be able to walk that line. You have to be able to, it, it's it's for the person who enjoys the crass, but understands the intelligent. Right. I think the best way to, to really sum that up, to go back to the prostate exam story, He's got the bit where he's in the doctor's room and he's bracing himself against the table. And he's like, you know, you stand there just like you're looking out over a cruise ship going, oh, we're approaching Martinique. As he's getting ready to have a doctor shove his finger up his butt. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I, so I want to wrap this up, um, but I'm just going to like I. The only other thing I meant to talk about that I didn't get to, and honestly, there's not a whole lot to say about it, was the one big miss of John Mulaney's career. And I think this actually says something, is John Mulaney got uh, a deal for a sitcom TV show, which was greenlit and uh, produced by Fox back in, I believe it was 2016. And it was uniformly ignored. It was critically panned as being a just thoughtless Seinfeld ripoff, because it was about Mulaney being a stand-up comic in New York, and, and his quirky there friends. Were bi- 
and his quirky friends, and Martin Short is there, and Martin Short plays this, like, famous person that he's a writer for, and it takes bits from his stand-up, and, or lines from his uh, first two stand-up specials, and, like, works them. Like, there's one point where he walks in, like, on his first or second meeting with Martin Short, and he walks in, and he and Martin Short's, like, it's not literally Martin Short, it's just Martin Short playing this character but martin short goes like oh you were running a little late did anything happen he's like yes i saw a wheelchair turned over and you think something happened there you hope it was a miracle but probably not which is literally a line from one of his first two specials and they just put it in this scene in 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 this episode and it's boring it's a really boring boring ass sitcom and i've heard interviews where he talked about it later and he's just kind of like Honestly, the process of writing a sitcom was the biggest problem because there's so much time between everything and you never know how any of it's going to be received or how it's going to go. And I think I just expected something deeper and smarter from John Mulaney. Because that's kind of where the landscape has gone anyway. You know, you don't get shows like Seinfeld or... um... I'm I'm honestly blanking on other examples, but you don't get... No, it's like the era of Seinfeld and home improvement and everybody loves Raymond. And there you go. These shows, yeah. these shows that were a stand-up comic gives you basically like their show and it's it will regularly feature bits of their stand-up in it, but it's also just like... Yeah, that era is gone. Like... After Ellen was canceled, after the Ellen DeGeneres show was canceled, I feel like we as a culture largely moved on from that. And the stand-up comic sitcoms now, like, sure, you get Billy Gardell in Mike and Molly, which I've never watched a single episode of Mike and Molly in my life. I like Billy Gardell. I really like Melissa McCartney. Meh. On Mike and Molly. I don't really care. Um, You got Louie which Louie was Louie, was Louie. And you got Atlanta, which is a completely different kind of show altogether. But that's because Donald, Donald Glover is Donald Glover. I think I expected it to take some chances. And sure. it didn't. It took none. And it's really the one failure of his career that I can point to definitively and go, that was a point where you tried to do something and it totally didn't work. And even he seems to admit that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's... I've, I've heard one funny joke from Mulaney, and I've actually used it as a drop in this very podcast, where his roommate is, like, very, very upset about something, and she's walking out the room, and she goes, I've just discovered my life's purpose, and leaves, and Mulaney turns to his friend and goes, wouldn't it be amazing if we heard a gun go off right now? <laughs> that's dark, and that's hilarious. Okay, that's good. I, I like that. Um... So there you go. There was a glimmer of hope in this otherwise uninspired TV show. Right. Other than that, I'm I'm happy he has big mouth now. I'm I'm happy that he is getting into Hollywood. I'm you know, it seems like he's he's bridged the gap completely. He's he's crossed the bridge from writer to entertainment personality, actor, stand up, TV, whatever. He can do it. And I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see him because I want his career to blossom and last for another 50 years. 
Yeah. Well, I don't think I also don't think he wants to be a movie star. I don't think he's interested in being the next Chris Rock or Eddie Murphy. I think he he's much more interested with being like a Carlin. Carlin would appear in movies. Um, Carlin always wanted to be an actor, but he was never able to be one. I think Mulaney can be an actor, um, and is choosing not to as much. Sure. That seems to be the vibe that I'm getting from him. So. John Mulaney, I love the guy. I think he's incredible. I think that he is worth checking out. He's got three of his specials are all, are up on Netflix to watch. Two of his specials are available on Spotify to stream. Um, countless of his stuff is on YouTube. I highly recommend. Check him out. He's incredible. Every special he does, I, I make a point of sitting down and watching or listening to and following because I think he's an incredible he's incredibly talented but he also works his ass off he's a gifted writer and I think that he is worth anybody checking out agreed big recommendations two thumbs way up sweet moving on now um, from John Mulaney who is possibly the least like our hate topic in the, <laughs> like incredibly so right the um, most alpha the most untoxically alpha man imaginable Oh, I have opinions here. Um, <laughs> my friend, take it away. Yeah, so I want to come today and talk about my hatred of toxic masculinity. Uh, this is another one that we we have hinted in previous episodes that we would get to. Though, funnily enough, I did not like go back and and dig this out. It just kind of kind of came back to me to talk about it but i want to start this discussion by asking you my friend alex were you ever in your childhood told that it wasn't okay for you to cry so i thought about this very carefully and it's interesting because i was never told it's not okay to cry i was told stop crying that's enough so it was like I would, and I remember this, like, I was, I was, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I was a sensitive child. Um, That boy ain't right. And I, you know, I I was not afraid to cry at a a lot of moments in childhood. And it always seemed like my parents were okay with letting me have that reaction. But it would not be crazy for them to reach what I would perceive to be a breaking point. Like, okay, you've been crying for such and such number of minutes. There was never an actual number of minutes, but it would be like there would be a point where they would just be like, okay, that's enough. Stop crying. It, you should not be this upset over this. Okay. Something along those lines. That was my experience with that. So no, no one ever told me it wasn't okay to cry. But I did internalize an idea that there was a limit to how much crying I could do and that it there was a point at which it stopped being okay to cry. Okay. Interesting. Um, I feel like that is tangentially related. The fact that you internalized something, um, and, and, you know, walked away as a child with this new thought in your head about there's only a certain amount you can cry that, that gets into what we're talking about. I, don't remember if I was ever told that I can't, that I couldn't cry, but I do remember my dad saying, 
it in some moment of post tension with my mom that it was not okay for him to cry. And, and Mm. the reason I bring this up is one of the, I feel like most easily recognizable tenets of toxic masculinity is telling boys specifically, you can't cry. Boys don't cry. What are you doing? Stop crying. Be a man, man up. And before we get too far down the rabbit hole, I feel like it is very important right here and now to put out a definition of toxic masculinity in ways that maybe we haven't hardly defined other topics. But the dictionary literally defines toxic masculinity as the aspects of traditional masculinity perceived to reinforce aggression, emotionlessness, and other negative qualities. And that's what I'm here to talk about. And that's a thing that I very much hate and a thing that has wormed its way into so many levels of our society and the modern day man and has been going on for years and years and years and years. Um, It's interesting because I think in the most part in the mainstream toxic masculinity has really picked up in the last decade five years ish that's when i you you really have heard the term being brought up more and more and more by casual people talking about it on on twitter on the internet um but i can recall as a child um watching a 60 minutes segment and it, it it wasn't the segment. It was actually just like the teacher for the teaser for the segment. But it was all about men and men crying and the stigma of men crying that they that 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 was a perceived thing. And so this is back in, you know, when I was a kid, this is 1999 that we were starting to examine this, this thing and clue in on it and, and try to have a discussion about it. I don't have any hard numbers to support this correlation, but I feel like it is a fact that toxic masculinity leads to a number of very terrible issues later in people's lives including but not limited to depression, suicide, and increased willingness to commit crimes, especially rape and domestic abuse, and just a a a, a violence, a a violence and a self-dysfunction that permeates a lot of men later in life. And it all starts with this societal reinforcement that you can't cry. Oh, don't play with those dolls. What are you, a sissy? All this, all this stuff, all this, all this stuff that is unmanly and unbecoming, and it, it becomes a a, cycl- a cyclical problem that you know a, a father admonishes his kid for playing with dolls. And tells him he can't cry and creates this psychological dissonance in his son's brain. The son grows up and and it's not just the father. It's all these different societal pressures creating this. 
But, you know, the sun grows up and then turns the same thing onto his own kids. I, I think that this has been going on for a very long time. This is not a new problem, even if it's kind of a new diagnosis to label something as toxically masculine. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so traditional masculinity as as we're discussing in this particular conversation, let's be fair, has existed in one form or another for as long as Western society has existed. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like our contemporary concept of Western society. And it, you know, this, this shit does permeate because... It, and and it goes throughout multiple cultures. That's that's another aspect to it. I you know I I think about the culture that I grew up in, and I didn't fit in a lot at all. Cause and and I've talked about this on the podcast before. I didn't have a lot of traditionally masculine interests. I never did. I just it wasn't in me. I didn't care about I didn't care about the sports I didn't care about I I actively loathed most gender roles like I every time I would hear any phrasing that was like for lack of a better term pro-traditional male any of your be a man's that's girl stuff anything along those lines I was always actively repulsed by this thing I put a lot of that to the fact that I was, you know, I consumed a lot of very good pop culture that tried to consistently tell me, no, girls are just as good as boys. And I would internal, I internalized that message very early on from where I don't, I honestly cannot tell you. I might've gotten that from my parents. I might've gotten that from, you know, fucking cartoons. Hell if I know, honestly. But it's interesting that that would get butted up against a lot. Sure. And we did not have the language to properly disseminate that for what it was. The most I would ever hear is that's sexist. Now, sexist is a much broader term that toxic masculinity definitely, or sexism is a broader term that toxic masculinity definitely interweaves itself into. But I think it, it I think it is a good thing for you to point out here the fact that it this is new terminology. There's a reason why you if you hang out on Twitter and actually try and analyze people discussing these topics, so when if you have a far enough reach and you use the word toxic masculinity, people go masculinity isn't toxic. And you kind of have to go, yes. And not every hamburger is a cheeseburger, but every cheeseburger is a cheeseburger. <laughs> you fuck twits. It, it's, so. it, it's, it's permeated so many facets of us, of our culture. And I don't just mean Western culture. I, I tried very hard to figure out if this was something you could classify as a societal problem or if this is a just widespread human thing. And I didn't find anything saying it one way or the other, but like this isn't just happening in America or in the Western hemisphere. These, these things are are happening everywhere. 
and it's such a thing now. Like, yeah, you go, you go on Twitter and I mean, this has come and gone, but think back to not all men, you know, there is a knee jerk. There, there's a knee jerk to guys having to be confronted with the idea that something about them isn't okay. And I think that knee jerk is, is just another symptom of the problem. Let me, let me pose a question to you that was posed to me a number of years ago that I honestly struggled with. Um, for a time I was writing for, uh, an online magazine called the body is not an apology. Shout out to them. Go subscribe, read their articles. They're great. And I remember my editors asking me to write an article on examples of healthy masculinity. And I struggled like hell to write this. Like hell. Because in my brain, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know what healthy masculinity looks like. Which says a lot about me. Because to me, a lot of the things that I would associate with myself in terms of the masculinity that I embodied either did or could become extremely toxic without a lot of effort. So I'm going to ask you, what do you consider like, because in your definition, you say aspects of traditional masculinity perceived to reinforce aggression, emotionlessness, or other negative qualities. So what's an example of traditional masculinity that doesn't do that? Um, what is non-toxic masculinity? Right. And the the thing that gives me pause more than anything is trying to verbalize it, because I do have something in my head. It's, it, it's a matter of support, and it's a matter of empathy. It, it's, it's a father being able to hold his son and tell him it's okay to cry if the kid's crying or it's honestly it's letting your three-year-old boy play with dolls if that's what he wants to play with and not freaking out and not pulling it out of his hands and putting in a nerf gun or something it's okay my kid wants to play with barbies right now whatever he's three let's see what he's doing in a week um, this kind of came off the top of my head, but I think this is very relatable. Um, are you familiar with, I'm sure you are, but I'm going to ask anyway, are you familiar with the music video for Logic's suicide number song? I am not. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't know if it's a spoiler because it's been out for a while. <laughs> And and this is actually like beneficial to my point, but um, tell you what, you can drop a tag number in for after we're done talking about this portion. Sure, sure. And I, I more okay. I more meant for you if you cared. <laughs> oh, I don't give a shit. Okay, spoil it. Um, okay. Um, so for anyone who is unfamiliar but interested, the rapper Logic has a song, and the song's title is 1-800-273-8255, which is the number for the suicide hotline. And the music video of the song deals with a a teenager who 
realizes comes to realize that he is gay and in the music video you see two different fathers react two different ways the our protagonist's father is very aggressive and very unhappy with this and very getting into fights with his son and and having an issue with the fact that his son is gay and and not being supportive and not even being open to really figuring out what's going on with his son. You see later in the music video, um, the, our protagonist spends the night with another boy and the other boy's father opens his son's bedroom door and sees his son like in bed with another boy. And they're both in their underwear. They're not doing anything. But what the second father does is he immediately closes the door he, you know, he gets a shock look on his face. He closes the door and then his son comes and opens the door. And you see that this other father has been standing there and he's got his like hands up to his chin and he's sitting there and he's processing and he is not freaking out. He's not getting a bat. He's not about to attack anybody. He's sitting there trying to process what he has just witnessed and walked in on and what that means. And that to me is a good example of non-toxic masculinity. Yeah. Okay. I I think I get an idea of that. So for me, when I, when I hear you explain that exact situation, the, the toxically masculine reaction there is, is the aggression is the react like the switchback reaction to anything that runs counterintuitive to one's own idea of what masculinity should entail you know yeah. i if, if if you're to run a parallel if you Everyone here doesn't need, like, nobody who listens to this who would hear a story about a kid who grew up. I I got a friend who grew up in the Georgia South and once told me about his brother reading a book about Buddhism. Just reading a book about Buddhism and his, like, Southern Baptist ass father seeing this book about Buddhism and making a giant deal of it and, you know, making his kid come in to talk to the preacher. Now, dad's reaction wasn't violent or anything, but he made a point to be like, I am terrified for your soul. I am so afraid of what this will do to you. That's a clear overreaction. Are there Southern Baptists who would see their kid reading a book about Buddhism, flip a shit, and beat the crap out of their kid? Yeah. That says less about Southern Baptism than it does about that particular parent. But you can see the, uh, you can see the attribution there. So the reason I mention this is because when you think about someone for whom you know, substitute religion for the tenets of traditional masculinity... And they see their kid move outside of traditional masculinity. 
whatever they use to define that, whether that's the culture they grew up in, a la what my father might have done, um, what this, what my friend's Southern father, Southern Baptist father might use to, to consider traditional masculinity, i.e. the tenets of the religion that he took very, very seriously, or just, I don't know, maybe you grew up in toxic-ass sports culture, which is a hotbed for toxic masculinity. Whatever's defining your sense of masculinity, if your reaction to any veering away from that traditional masculinity is this kind of aggressive action, this kind of cruel action, this idea that it needs to be somehow addressed in this toxically masculine fashion. And let's be clear, violence to someone who is not actively attempting violence upon you is toxically masculine, period. Um, underlining that one, I get it. Yeah. I think I... I, I, think I I think I understand where they're coming from on that. I understand where this comes from. The question is just like, how do you combat that? How do you deprogram that? You know, like, my parents did a really good job of dealing with the fact that I was not traditionally masculine. Yes, my mother flipped her shit out when she caught me dancing to Katy Perry in my bedroom. <laughs> yes. I have heard, I, I have been called in two languages a faggot more times than I can count by more family members that I can count who I won't name here. What are you going to do about that? I, 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 I got to wait for them to die, basically, for this stuff to be gone and out of my life from that particular wing. That doesn't change the fact that it still comes up in my day-to-day -day life. Sure. And it will come up in my day-to-day -day life. So the only thing I really seem to have is curating my life to mostly include people who would see the spots where I'm very non-traditionally masculine and go, yeah, that's Alex. That's just what Alex does. Alex dances his ass off to Katy Perry, doesn't know, doesn't know shit about cars, couldn't give a shit about sports <laughs> and will fucking like knife a bitch if he finds out that they are in any way mean to you because that's who Alex is. Now stand back, I gotta practice my stabbing. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, please help! And that's all I got. Sure. So that's how I can deal with it in my personal life. And anyone who struggles with dealing with toxically masculine influences. That's probably the best way to deal with it personally, but where do you combat that societally? Yeah. Yeah, and and this wasn't this was another one where I I don't think we're going to solve toxic masculinity in the next couple minutes here, but I do think <laughs> that the the key now whether it's achievable or not I don't know, but the key is again empathy and the ability in each individual person to be more open to be less stuck in what does my son's behavior mean for me or less stuck in 
what it what are people going to think if I do a certain thing? We haven't really talked about it, but I do want to say, you know, toxic masculinity can hurt the 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 men as much as it can hurt the the children and the spouses of these men. Um it's it it it, it's going to be a, a slow, widespread change. You know, a, a couple years ago, I might have said that I think we as a society were turning a corner and then the past couple years have happened and you really have to question that. But, well, you know, hurt dogs yell. Sure. You know, that's just that. And, and, and that's have you read the shit that happened at the beginning? Have you have you ever read any of the op-eds that came out around the suffragette movement? I have not. And do yourself a favor. Go on Google Scholar at some point. All of you. Go on Google Scholar at some point. Go, or even just Google it. You can see op-eds from, the ni- from pre-1920 talking about thoughts on women having a vote. And what it will do to the American male. And it is the most heartbreakingly bullshitty logic I have ever heard. What's better than this? Guys being dudes. But the fact of the matter is, I think it was Bell Hooks who said, when when the powerful, equality to the powerful looks like oppression. Something along those lines. I think that was a Bell Hooks line. Sure. People who ensconce themselves in an, a particular view of masculinity, when there's pushback against that, the only reaction and the and it, the only reaction sometimes that's taught is that kind of reaction that you're talking about. The thing that makes you kind of lose a little hope through the last couple of years. But at the same time, you know, I I remember when not, not even not even I remember I was talking to a friend who listened to a bunch of Sam Kinison albums after we had talked about Sam Kinison and he turned Kinison off and said I can't listen to this guy <laughs> because Kinison no because Kinison had just done his whole bit about killing gay people sure and he's talking about quote killing faggots same time you know, Eddie Murphy's around the same time had regular bits about the exact same topic and about how AIDS is, you know, this thing that gay people deserve. And he got huge laughs for talking about that. Sam Kinison died. Eddie Murphy has since apologized and done active work and donated money to AIDS research and advocacy for the gay community. Because Eddie Murphy, somewhere along the line, went, this is the shit I grew up with. And let's be clear, Eddie Murphy grew up in a very traditionally masculine household. A lot of African-American poor culture is a hotbed for some toxic masculinity because that's a lot of what the culture has had reinforced for them, whether by an old traditionalist guard or by popular culture. And there have been shifts in that. So that's why I'm not mad about supporting Eddie Murphy, but God, Kinnison can be hard to listen to sometimes. That is true. Legitimately. And that's a corner. That's an important corner. You know, it's 2019, and we have people 
who are the exact demographic that Kinnison was appealing to 25 years ago, who are now going, I can't listen to this son of a bitch. I can't. I broke the CD in half. So You bring up a good point. Uh, we're going to have to talk about it some later date. I, I, I do worry often about what making the very first thing anybody of our show listens to is me talking about Kinnison, what that does for uh, their perceptions of me and their perceptions of us, because you're right. Um, the, the man was excessively problematic, especially in, in, in the toxically masculine way. Yeah. Um, but I like to, I like to think we didn't get, let him off the hook for that. I don't think we did. Uh, so, so we have a, a fantastic question, and I just want my final word to be this on toxic masculinity. There is a conceit that all of this behavior just kind of is instinctually baked into boys, men's brains, and it is the the alpha hunter caveman, and it is all of the psychic remnants of, of of those instincts that cause this aggression and this territorial behavior. And I find that to be a bunch of phrenological bullshit. I think this is a very much a, a nurture issue. It's not a nature one. And I mean, yeah, the, the key to it, in some bright day in the future is going to be a a, a lot of people opening their hearts and minds to not to, to foreign concepts and it's going to take a lot of empathy, but you know, until then I think this is an important thing to watchdog an important thing to call out. There are oh so many problems in the world that I think you could attribute to toxic masculinity and it is very worthy of very worthy of my hate i think that's a great note to end on awesome well so like i said we have a i'm very interested to get into this question we have today (laughs) do you want to read it or do i uh you go ahead dude all right question my best friend since college let's call her frodo is married to a guy who i really dislike let's call him Gollum. i disliked him when they started dating I disliked him when they got engaged, and I dislike him now that they've been married for the past two years. He treats her fine and isn't a bad guy, really, but he's brash and loud and not much of an intellectual. We never really have anything in common or anything to talk about since he's into big action movies, sports, stuff with motors, video games, and comic books, and I, and Frodo, really, really aren't. We also have almost 15 years of history, and he only came into the picture in the last five. When we hang out, I just kind of say the bare minimum to him and try to set things up so that it's really just me and my friend. She knows that Gollum and I aren't close, but doesn't really know how little I think of him, and he's oblivious. I feel like I'll need, I feel like I'll need to tell her soon, though since there's only so long I can dodge suggestions for couples, events, and vacations. I'm married too, by the way, and my husband gets along with both of them great. Any advice for bringing this up after waiting so long? And it is signed, Samwise Gamgee. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. 
and I don't mean to. Okay. So thank you for uh, giving us your your own call sign, Sam. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. Um, this one is fun. So um, I, uh, I'll, I'll start off with saying you sent me the you found this question and you sent it to me and my exact words when i read it and and responded to you were love the question i just hope sanwise isn't expecting us to be on her side of this and i had to remember or at least reread the question and realize sam isn't really asking us if she they if they are in the right just more asking for advice for bringing this up after waiting so long. So I'm going to try to just focus on that part. You've got opinions. Uh, I just, I, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm being mean and projecting a bunch of opinions, but I, okay, Sam, you were really great. That, that section of the journey where you had to take on the ring and, and and fight Shelob and I really appreciated that. Nerd. I feel like it is important to clarify that I don't think you are justified in your dislike of 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 Gollum because clearly your best friend did like Gollum enough to get to meet, have a relationship with, and get married to the fella within five years. Now, I understand there's a lot of history between you guys, and I understand that you don't get along with Gollum, but you don't need to. That's not a prerequisite for anybody's... This It's not a prerequisite for this to work out for any of the four of you. So with that said, I'm going to try very much to actually answer the part of this you're asking for help with. Any advice on bringing this up after waiting so long? I think you've got to just eat a big old plate of shit here and come clean with your friend that you really don't like him or you haven't really liked him. And a part of that big old plate of shit you're going to have to eat is you coming to grips with yourself why that is and why can't that change so that's my first thought and i'm gonna Hmm. let you tag in no you're good um i struggled a little bit on this one my own self um especially because i feel like i have (laughs) i feel like i have been the golem in this situation (laughs) me too i would i had to reread this and be like okay i don't like cars so this can't be me (laughs) (laughs) No, you're good. Now, this, uh, I, I want to try and validate you, Sam, because I don't think you need to like your best friend's partner. I don't think you need to like anybody. There's lots of people I don't like, and I don't feel like I need to be overly justified in disliking them. I don't, you know, it's the, the important thing. And, and I do like that you, I, I will commend you. You are self-aware enough and intelligent enough that your dislikes for this individual uh, don't 
blind you so much that you think that they're, you know, a bad match for your friend. You you out you outright say like he's a he's not a bad guy. He treats my friend really well. Like you're you're willing to make those admissions, which is good. This is not a question of like you disliking this guy for truly despicable reasons. Like you think you're better than he is or something like I'll admit the thing about he's not really an intellectual, kind of shitty. But I think you know it's kind of shitty. Um, so I'm not going to harp on that point. But I will say, you don't need to like this guy. But if you want to have a relationship with your friend, you are not entitled to her friendship. Part of that friendship, because she is partnered with someone you don't like, may be you putting up with someone you don't like. You ask us for advice on bringing this up because you can't keep putting off, quote, couple things. Need to tell them soon enough so that I... Suggestions for couple events and vacations. So everyone, everyone in this situation, or at least everyone on your friend's side of that, like that relationship, seems to think you're cool with everyone involved. And... Your dislike for Gollum is so heavy that you think you can't do these couple events or vacations. That's fine. If you honestly can't, if you dislike this person so much that you can't stand to be in their presence for these couple events, even with your partner there and his partner there, your best friend there, that's fine. The next time they bring up going on a vacation together or doing a big couple event, you take your friend aside, just your friend, and you say, listen, I need to be upfront with you. I don't really like your partner. I should have told you earlier. I'm sorry about that. You come clean. You come clean and you emphasize that it's not because you think he's a bad guy. And you emphasize that it's honestly just a clash of personalities because that is the most valid aspect of this opinion. You guys just don't clash. You don't have much in common. You don't really vibe with one another in that way. I'm sure that they know that you... You say that they can tell you're not the closest. That's not a far leap to, I don't really like him. I don't really care to spend a lot of time with him. I don't think I want to go on any couple vacations or any couples events with you guys. If everyone is on, if, if everyone is above board, fine. It doesn't need to be a big conflict. It will become a big conflict if you decide to be a condescending ass about this. I'm not saying you're a condescending ass. I'm saying don't go, hey, Gollum's not really an intellectual and that's why I don't like him. You're going to want to think about how you phrase this. But that's the best way to go about that. I like that a lot. Uh, hey, Sam, it's it's me again. It's Andy. Um, <laughs> I feel bad about... I, I feel like I went on you kind of hard a, a minute ago. And I feel bad about that. You were nice enough to come to us with a question. Um, I, I, I just wanted to kind of help you by helping you realize that maybe this is kind of crappy on your part. Um, but to, to help give some more advice on how to bring this up after waiting so long, you mentioned you're married, you, you have, you have your husband and your husband gets along great with both Frodo and 
Gollum. I would talk, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't, then you definitely need to talk to your husband and help just kind of figure out what is it, what does he have that you don't that makes it so that this isn't, that Gollum isn't such an issue. And I think Alex is right in that you don't have to like anybody. I get a sense from your question that you know you don't have to like anybody. You don't have to like Gollum, but you really like Frodo. Frodo's your best friend. And you want to figure out how to at least make this work with the least amount of, you know, screaming and drama and Nazgul. Um, I think, I think getting the husbands out of the situation could be a good idea. The, the key relationship it seems here is between you and Frodo. And so maybe you guys go hang out on your own. Maybe you go have a a best friend's date and yeah, you, you, you lay it out there and you can either work on what do I need to change about myself to make the idea of going on a cruise with uh, Frodo and Gollum palatable, or you come to grips with the fact that you don't ever want to go to on a cruise with Frodo and Gollum. And I think you use the people around you that you like to help you kind of come to those conclusions. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. I just, Sam, you will never get out of having some interactions with this person as long as you choose to have this friendship with your best friend. Inevitably, you guys are all going to be invited to the same wedding, to the same New Year's party, to some events, a funeral, who the fuck knows. Inevitably, you're going to have interactions. You will do well personally to get to the point where you can have those interactions with Gollum peacefully. It sounds like you're more or less at that point. You find it unpleasant, but that's a level of unpleasantness that you're going to have to suck up for those very, hopefully, occasional situations. Um, You don't exactly say here that all of y'all have, like, a weekly movie night or like you're on the same bowling or trivia team or something like that, where you have to all interact on a regular basis. You don't communicate that anything like that's there. So barring those very occasional situations you can't get out of, just be straightforward with Frodo. Say, this is my situation. I don't want, do not be disparaging and just live your life. Yo, like, It's okay. You don't have to spend time with people you don't want to spend time with. I'd ask you to maybe examine other relationships in your life that might be similar. Maybe you have family that you're not particularly fond of. That might sound weird to some people. Like, shouldn't it be, shouldn't it be more of an issue to have to interact with like your family you don't like than your best friend? No, I don't think so. Like, If there's family you dislike that you try and limit contact with, see if you can do something along those same lines. Present options. Um, 
have ideas in place, make everyone aware, but try and think about people's feelings here yeah, as much as possible. Because it sounds like this is a bunch of good people uh, and your feelings, while valid, could be painful. And you would do well to mind that. So mind that carefully. Think about how you want to present this. Be gentle. Do not be insulting. Be honest, but not insulting. Because remember, honesty without compassion is cruelty. And yeah, just have that conversation with Frodo. Frodo's the one to talk to here. Because honestly, what's going to come out of telling Gollum to his face, I don't like you because I don't think you're smart enough or intellectual enough for your wife or for me. Nothing good's going to come of that. So present it gently to Frodo and accept that this will probably change your relationship to some degree, at least in the short term, but that ultimately you two will probably be okay as long as everyone's honest and mindful of feelings. Absolutely. And, you know, we wish you the best. Thank you for your question. And, you know, let us know how it goes. So that's been our show. Uh, Just a reminder, if you have a relationship problem and it doesn't have to be a a, a romantic relationship, it can be a friend relationship like this one. It can be a coworker problem. It can be a pet question. Uh, If you have anything like that that you want our perfectly unqualified advice with, you can send those to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com, and we promise we'll read them. You can both subscribe subscribe to and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. And uh, if any of you have other formats with which you would like to listen to us, let us know. We have an RSS feed. We will happily try and get that set up. We're always looking to expand. Uh, we would also uh, you would also love it if you tweeted us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. You can follow me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JovoCop2113. And I'm Alex Ruiz. I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, every listening, everybody. We love you so much. And uh, as always, please tell your enemies.